The second part of Chapter Fourteen of Women in Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Women in Love by D. H. Lawrence. The second part of Chapter Fourteen. Water Party. Birkin Rose. Gerald and Gudrun came up. They all began to smoke in the moments of silence. One after another Birkin lighted their cigarettes. The match flickered in the twilight, and they were all smoking peacefully by the waterside. The lake was dim, the light dying from off it in the midst of the dark land. The air all round was intangible, neither here nor there and there was an unreal noise of banjos or such-like music. As the golden swim of light overhead died out, the moon gained brightness, and seemed to begin to smile forth her ascendancy. The dark woods on the opposite shore melted into universal shadow, and amid this universal undershadow there was a scattered intrusion of lights. Far down the lake were fantastic pale strings of colour, like beads of wan fire, green and red and yellow. The music came out in a little puff, as the launch all illuminated veered into the great shadow, stirring her outlines of half-living lights, puffing out her music in little drifts. All were lighting up. Here and there, close against the faint water and at the far end of the lake, where the water lay milky in the last whiteness of the sky and there was no shadow, solitary, frail flames of lanterns floated from the unseen boats. There was a sound of oars, and a boat passed from the pallor into the darkness under the wood, where her lanterns seemed to kindle into fire, hanging in ruddy, lovely globes and again in the lake shadowy red gleams hovered in reflection about the boat. Everywhere were these noiseless ruddy creatures of fire drifting near the surface of the water, caught at by the rarest, scarce visible reflections. Birkin brought the lanterns from the bigger boat, and the four shadowy white figures gathered round to light them. Ursula held up the first, Birkin lowered the light from the rosy, glowing cup of his hands into the depths of the lantern. It was kindled, and they all stood back to look at the great blue moon of light that hung from Ursula's hand, casting a strange gleam on her face. It flickered, and Birkin went bending over the well of light. His face shone out like an apparition, so unconscious, and again something demoniacal. Ursula was dim and veiled, looming over him. "'That is all right,' said his voice softly. She held up the lantern. It had a flight of stalks streaming through a turquoise sky of light over a dark earth. "'This is beautiful,' she said. "'Lovely,' echoed Gudrun, who wanted to hold one also and lift it up full of beauty. "'Light one for me,' she said. Gerald stood by her, incapacitated. Birkin lit the lantern she held up. Her heart beat with anxiety to see how beautiful it would be. It was primrose yellow, with tall, straight flowers growing darkly from their dark leaves, lifting their heads into the primrose day, while butterflies hovered about them in the pure, clear light. Gudrun gave a little cry of excitement, as if pierced with delight. "'Isn't it beautiful? Oh, isn't it beautiful?' Her soul was really pierced with beauty. She was translated beyond herself. Gerald leaned near to her, into her zone of light, as if to see. He came close to her, and stood touching her, looking with her at the primrose shining globe and she turned her face to his, that was faintly bright in the light of the lantern, and they stood together in one luminous union, close together and ringed round with light, all the rest excluded. Birkin looked away, 
and went to light Ursula's second lantern. It had a pale, ruddy sea-bottom, with black crabs and seaweed moving sinuously under a transparent sea that passed into flamy ruddiness above. "'You've got the heavens above and the waters under the earth,' said Birkin to her. "'Anything but the earth itself,' she laughed, watching his live hands that hovered to attend to the light. "'I'm dying to see what my second one is.' cried Gudrun, in a vibrating, rather strident voice that seemed to repel the others from her. Birkin went and kindled it. It was of a lovely deep blue colour, with a red floor and a great white cuttlefish flowing in white soft streams all over it. The cuttlefish had a face that stared straight from the heart of the light, very fixed and coldly intent. "'How truly terrifying!' exclaimed Gudrun, in a voice of horror. Gerald, at her side, gave a low laugh. "'But isn't it really fearful?' she cried in dismay. Again he laughed, and said, "'Change it with Ursula for the crabs.' Gudrun was silent for a moment. "'Ursula,' she said, "'could you bear to have this fearful thing?' "'I think the colouring is lovely,' said Ursula. "'So do I,' said Gudrun. "'But could you bear to have it swinging to your boat? "'Don't you want to destroy it at once?' "'Oh, no,' said Ursula. "'I don't want to destroy it.' "'Well, do you mind having it instead of the crabs? "'Are you sure you don't mind?' "'Gudrun came forward to exchange lanterns. "'No,' said Ursula, yielding up the crabs and receiving the cuttlefish.' Yet she could not help feeling rather resentful at the way in which Gudrun and Gerald should assume a right over her, a precedence. "'Come, then,' said Birkin. "'I'll put them on the boats.' He and Ursula were moving away to the big boat. "'I suppose you'll row me back, Rupert,' said Gerald, out of the pale shadow of the evening. "'Won't you go with Gudrun in the canoe?' said Birkin. "'It'll be more interesting.' There was a moment's pause. Birkin and Ursula stood dimly with their swinging lanterns by the water's edge. The world was all elusive. "'Is that all right?' said Gudrun to him. "'It'll suit me very well,' he said. "'But what about you and the rowing? I don't see why you should pull me.' "'Why not?' she said. "'I can pull you as well as I could pull Ursula.' By her tone he could tell she wanted to have him in the boat to herself, and that she was subtly gratified that she should have power over them both. He gave himself in a strange electric submission. She handed him the lanterns, whilst she went to fix the cane at the end of the canoe. He followed after her, and stood with the lanterns dangling against his white flannelled thighs, emphasising the shadow around. "'Kiss me before we go,' came his voice softly from out of the shadow above. She stopped her work in real momentary astonishment. "'But why?' she exclaimed in pure surprise. "'Why?' he echoed ironically. And she looked at him fixedly for some moments. Then she leaned forward and kissed him with a slow, luxurious kiss, lingering on the mouth and then she took the lanterns from him, while he stood swooning with the perfect fire that burned in all his joints. They lifted the canoe into the water. Gudrun took her place, and Gerald pushed off. "'Are you sure you don't hurt your hand doing that?' she asked solicitors. "'Because I could have done it perfectly.' "'I don't hurt myself.' he said in a low, soft voice that caressed her with inexpressible beauty. And she watched him as he sat near her, very near to her, in the stern of the canoe, his legs coming towards hers, his feet touching hers. And she paddled softly, lingeringly, longing for him to say something meaningful to her. But he remained silent. "'You like this, do you?' she said, in a gentle, solicitous voice. He laughed shortly. "'There is a space between us,' 
he said, in the same low, unconscious voice, as if something was speaking out of him. And she was as if magically aware of their being balanced in separation in the boat. She swooned with acute comprehension and pleasure. "'But I am very near,' she said caressively, gaily. "'Yet distant, distant,' he said. Again she was silent with pleasure, before she answered, speaking with a reedy, thrilled voice. "'Yet we cannot very well change whilst we're on the water.' She caressed him subtly and strangely, having him completely at her mercy. A dozen or more boats on the lake swung their rosy and moon-like lanterns low on the water that reflected as from a fire. In the distance the steamer twanged and thrummed and washed with her faintly splashing paddles, trailing her strings of coloured lights, and occasionally lighting up the whole scene luridly with an effusion of fireworks, Roman candles, and sheaths of stars, and other simple effects, illuminating the surface of the water and showing the boats creeping round low down. Then the lovely darkness fell again. The lanterns and the little threaded lights glimmered softly. There was a muffled knocking of oars and a waving of music. Gudrun paddled almost imperceptibly. Gerald could see, not far ahead, the rich blue and the rose globes of Ursula's lanterns, swaying softly cheek to cheek as Birkin rode, and iridescent, evanescent gleams chasing in the wake. He was aware, too, of his own delicately coloured lights casting their softness behind him. Gudrun rested her paddle and looked round. The canoe lifted with the lightest ebbing of the water. Gerald's white knees were very near to her. "'Isn't it beautiful?' she said softly, as if reverently. She looked at him as he leaned back against the faint crystal of the lantern-light. She could see his face, although it was a pure shadow, but it was a piece of twilight, and her breast was keen with passion for him. He was so beautiful in his male stillness and mystery. It was a certain pure effluence of maleness, like an aroma from his softly, firmly moulded contours, a certain rich perfection of his presence that touched her with an ecstasy, a thrill of pure intoxication. She loved to look at him. For the present she did not want to touch him, to know the further satisfying substance of his living body. He was purely intangible, yet so near. Her hands lay on the paddle like slumber. She only wanted to see him like a crystal shadow, to feel his essential presence. Yes, he said vaguely. It is very beautiful. He was listening to the faint near sounds, the dropping of water-drops from the oar-blades, the slight drumming of the lanterns behind him as they rubbed against one another, the occasional rustling of Gudrun's full skirt, an alien land noise. His mind was almost submerged. He was almost transfused, lapsed out for the first time in his life into the things about him. For he always kept such a keen attentiveness, concentrated and unyielding in himself. Now he had let go. Imperceptibly he was melting into oneness with the whole. It was like pure, perfect sleep. His first great sleep of life. He had been so insistent, so guarded all his life, but here was sleep and peace and perfect lapsing out. "'Shall I row to the landing stage?' asked Gudrun wistfully. "'Anywhere,' he answered. "'Let it drift.' "'Tell me, then, if we're running into anything,' she replied, in that very quiet, toneless voice of sheer intimacy. "'The lights will show,' 
he said. So they drifted almost motionless in silence. He wanted silence, pure and whole. But she was uneasy yet for some word, for some assurance. "'Nobody will miss you?' she asked, anxious for some communication. "'Miss me?' he echoed. "'No, why?' "'I wondered if anybody would be looking for you.' "'Why should they look for me?' And he remembered his manners. "'But perhaps you want to get back,' he said in a changed voice. "'No, I don't want to get back,' she replied. "'No, I assure you.' "'You're quite sure it's all right for you?' "'Perfectly all right.' And again they were still. The launch twanged and hooted. Somebody was singing— then, as if the night smashed, suddenly there was a great shout, a confusion of shouting, warring on the water, then the horrid noise of paddles reversed and churned violently. Gerald sat up, and Gudrun looked at him in fear. "'Somebody in the water,' he said angrily and desperately, looking keenly across the dusk. "'Can you row up?' "'Where? To the launch?' asked Gudrun, in nervous panic. "'Yes.' "'You'll tell me if I don't steer straight.' she said, in nervous apprehension. "'You keep pretty level,' he said, and the canoe hastened forward. The shouting and the noise continued, sounding horrid through the dusk over the surface of the water. "'Wasn't this bound to happen?' said Gudrun, with heavy, hateful irony. But he hardly heard, and she glanced over her shoulder to see her way. The half-dark waters were sprinkled with lovely bubbles of swaying lights. The launch did not look far off. She was rocking her lights in the early night. Gudrun rowed as hard as she could, but now that it was a serious matter she seemed uncertain and clumsy in her stroke. It was difficult to paddle swiftly. She glanced at his face. He was looking fixedly into the darkness, very keen and alert and single in himself, instrumental. Her heart sank. She seemed to die a death. "'Of course,' she said to herself, "'nobody will be drowned. Of course they won't. It would be too extravagant and sensational.' But her heart was cold because of his sharp, impersonal face. It was as if he belonged naturally to dread and catastrophe. As if he were himself again. Then there came a child's voice, a girl's high, piercing shriek. "'Die! Die! 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 Oh, die! Oh, die! Oh, die!' The blood ran cold in Gudrun's veins. "'It's Diana, is it?' muttered Gerald. "'The young monkey! She'd have to be up to some of her tricks!' And he glanced again at the paddle. The boat was not going quickly enough for him. It made Gudrun almost helpless at the rowing, this nervous stress. She kept up with all her might. Still the voices were calling and answering. "'Where? Where? There you are. That's it. Which? No! No! Damn it all! Here! Here!' Boats were hurrying from all directions to the scene. Coloured lanterns could be seen waving close to the surface of the lake, reflections swaying after them in uneven haste. The steamer hooted again for some unknown reason. Gudrun's boat was travelling quickly. The lanterns were swinging behind Gerald. And then again came the child's high, screaming voice, with a note of weeping and impatience in it now. "'Die! I'll die! I'll die! I'll die!' It was a terrible sound, coming through the obscure air of the evening. "'You'd be better if you were in bed, Winnie,' Gerald muttered to himself. He was stooping, unlacing his shoes, pushing them off with the foot. Then he threw his soft hat into the bottom of the boat. "'You can't go into the water with your hurt hand,' said Gudrun, panting, in a low voice of horror. "'What? It won't hurt!' He had struggled out of his jacket, and had dropped it between his feet. He sat bareheaded, all in white now. He felt the belt at his waist. 
They were nearing the launch which stood still big above them, her myriad lamps making lovely darts, and sinuous running tongues of ugly red and green and yellow light on the lustrous dark water under the shadow. Oh, get her out! Oh, Daddy, darling! Oh, get her out! Oh, Daddy, Daddy! moaned the child's voice in distraction. Somebody was in the water with a life-belt. Two boats paddled near, their lanterns swinging ineffectually, the boats nosing round. "'Hi there! Rockley! Hi there!' "'Mr. Gerald!' came the captain's terrified voice. "'Mr. Anna's in the water!' "'Anybody gone in for her?' came Gerald's sharp voice. "'Young Dr. Brindle, sir!' "'Where?' "'Can't see no signs of them, sir. Everybody's looking, but there's nothing so far.' There was a moment's ominous pause. "'Where did she go in?' "'I think about where that boat is,' came the uncertain answer. "'That one with red and green lights.' "'Row there,' said Gerald quietly to Gudrun. "'Get her out, Gerald! Oh, get her out!' The child's voice was crying anxiously. He took no heed. "'Lean back that way,' said Gerald to Gudrun as he stood up in the frail boat. She won't upset. In another moment he had dropped clean down, soft and plumb into the water. Gudrun was swaying violently in her boat. The agitated water shook with transient lights. She realised that it was faintly moonlight, and that he was gone. So it was possible to be gone. A terrible sense of fatality robbed her of all feeling and thought. She knew he was gone out of the world. There was merely the same world and absence, his absence. The night seemed large and vacuous. Lanterns swayed here and there. People were talking in an undertone on the launch and in the boats. She could hear Winifred moaning. Oh, do you find her, Gerald? Do you find her? and somebody trying to comfort the child. Gudrun paddled aimlessly here and there. The terrible, massive, cold, boundless surface of the water terrified her beyond words. Would he never come back? She felt she must jump into the water too, to know the horror also. She started, hearing someone say, "'There he is!' She saw the movement of his swimming like a water-rat, and she rowed involuntarily to him, but he was near another boat, a bigger one. Still she rowed towards him. She must be very near. She saw him. He looked like a seal. He looked like a seal as he took hold of the side of the boat. His fair hair was washed down on his round head. His face seemed to glisten suavely. She could hear him panting. Then he clambered into the boat. Oh, and the beauty of the subjection of his loins, white and dimly luminous as he climbed over the side of the boat, made her want to die, to die. The beauty of his dim and luminous loins as he climbed into the boat, his back rounded and soft. Oh, this was too much for her, too final a vision. She knew it and it was fatal. The terrible hopelessness of fate, and of beauty, such beauty. He was not like a man to her. He was an incarnation, a great phase of life. She saw him press the water out of his face, and look at the bandage on his hand, and she knew it was all no good and that she would never go beyond him. He was the final approximation of life to her. "'Put the lights out, we shall see better,' came his voice, sudden and mechanical, and belonging to the world of man. She could scarcely believe there was a world of man. She leaned round and blew out her lanterns. They were difficult to blow out. Everywhere the lights were gone, save the coloured points on the sides of the launch. The bluey-grey early night spread level around. 
the moon was overhead, there were shadows of boats here and there. Again there was a splash, and he was gone under. Gudrun sat, sick at heart, frightened of the great level surface of the water, so heavy and deadly. She was so alone, with the level, unliving field of the water stretching beneath her. It was not a good isolation. It was a terrible, cold separation of suspense. She was suspended upon the surface of the insidious reality, until such time as she also should disappear beneath it. Then she knew, by a stirring of voices, that he had climbed out again into a boat. She sat, wanting connection with him. Strenuously she claimed her connection with him across the invisible space of the water, but round her heart was an isolation unbearable, through which nothing would penetrate. "'Take the launch in. It's no use keeping her there. Get lines for the dragging.' came the decisive instrumental voice that was full of the sound of the world. The launch began gradually to beat the waters. "'Gerald! Gerald!' came the wild, crying voice of Winifred. He did not answer. Slowly the launch drifted round in a pathetic and clumsy circle, and slunk away to the land, retreating into the dimness. The wash of her paddles grew duller. Gudrun rocked in her light boat, and dipped the paddle automatically to steady herself. Gudrun! called Ursula's voice. Ursula! The boats of the two sisters pulled together. Where is Gerald? said Gudrun. He's dived again, said Ursula plaintively. "'and I know he ought not, with his hurt hand and everything.' "'I'll take him in home this time,' said Birkin. "'The boats swayed again from the wash of steamer. "'Gudrun and Ursula kept a lookout for Gerald. "'There he is!' cried Ursula, who had the sharpest eyes. "'He had not been long under. "'Birkin pulled towards him, Gudrun following. "'He swam slowly.' and caught hold of the boat with his wounded hand. It slipped, and he sank back. "'Why don't you help him?' cried Ursula sharply. He came again, and Birkin leaned to help him into the boat. Gudrun again watched Gerald climb out of the water. But this time, slowly, heavily, with the blind, clambering motions of an amphibious beast, clumsy. Again the moon shone with faint luminosity on his white, wet figure, on the stooping back and the rounded loins. But it looked defeated now, his body. It clambered and fell with slow clumsiness. He was breathing hoarsely, too, like an animal that is suffering. He sat, slack and motionless, in the boat his head blunt and blind like a seal's, his whole appearance inhuman, unknowing. Gudrun shuddered as she mechanically followed his boat. Birkin rowed without speaking to the landing stage. "'Where are you going?' Gerald asked suddenly, as if just waking up. "'Home,' said Birkin. "'Oh, no!' said Gerald imperiously. "'We can't go home while they're in the water. Turn back again. I'm going to find them.' The women were frightened. His voice was so imperative and dangerous, almost mad, not to be opposed. "'No,' said Birkin. "'You can't.' There was a strange, fluid compulsion in his voice. Gerald was silent in a battle of wills. It was as if he would kill the other man, but Birkin rode evenly and unswerving, with an inhuman inevitability. "'Why should you interfere?' said Gerald, in hate. Birkin did not answer. 
he rode towards the land, and Gerald sat, mute, like a dumb beast, panting, his teeth chattering, his arms inert, his head like a seal's head. They came to the landing-stage. Wet and naked-looking, Gerald climbed up the few steps. There stood his father in the night. "'Father!' he said. "'Yes, my boy. Go home and get those things off.' "'We shan't save them, father,' said Gerald. "'There's hope yet, my boy.' "'I'm afraid not. There's no knowing where they are. You can't find them, and there's a current as cold as hell.' "'We'll let the water out.' said the father. Go home, you, and look to yourself. See that he's looked after, Rupert, he added in a neutral voice. Well, father, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm afraid it's my fault, but it can't be helped. I've done what I could for the moment. I could go on diving, of course. Not much, though, and not much use." He moved away, barefoot, on the planks of the platform. Then he trod on something sharp. "'Of course, you've got no shoes on,' said Birkin. "'His shoes are here!' cried Gudrun from below. She was making fast her boat. Gerald waited for them to be brought to him. Gudrun came with them. He pulled them on his feet. "'If you want to die,' he said, "'then when it's over... It's finished. Why come to life again? There's room under that water there for thousands. Two is enough, she said, murmuring. He dragged on his second shoe. He was shivering violently, and his jaw shook as he spoke. That's true, he said. Maybe. But it's curious how much room there seems. A whole universe under there, and as cold as hell. You're as helpless as if your head was cut off. He could scarcely speak, he shook so violently. There's one thing about our family, you know, he continued. Once anything goes wrong, it can never be put right again. Not with us. I've noticed it all my life. You can't put a thing right once it has gone wrong. They were walking across the high road to the house. And, you know, when you're down there, it's so cold, actually, and so endless, so different, really, from what it is on top. So endless. You wonder how it is so many are alive, why we're up here. Are you going? I shall see you again, shan't I? Good night, and thank you. Thank you very much. The two girls waited a while to see if there were any hope. The moon shone clearly overhead with almost impertinent brightness. The small dark boats clustered on the water. There were voices and subdued shouts. But it was all to no purpose. Gudrun went home when Birkin returned. He was commissioned to open the sluice that let out the water from the lake, which was pierced at one end near the high road, thus serving as a reservoir to supply with water the distant mines in case of necessity. "'Come with me,' he said to Ursula, "'and then I will walk home with you when I've done this.' He called at the waterkeeper's cottage and took the key of the sluice. They went through a little gate from the high road to the head of the water, where was a great stone basin which received the overflow and a flight of stone steps descended into the depths of the water itself. At the head of the steps was the lock of the sluice-gate. The night was silver-grey and perfect, save for the scattered, restless sound of voices. The grey sheen of the moonlight caught the stretch of water. Dark boats plashed and moved. But Ursula's mind ceased to be receptive. Everything was unimportant and unreal. Birkin fixed the iron handle of the sluice and turned it with a wrench. The cogs began slowly to rise. 
He turned and turned, like a slave. His white figure became distinct. Ursula looked away. She could not bear to see him winding heavily and laboriously, bending and rising mechanically like a slave, turning the handle. Then, a real shock to her, there came a loud splashing of water from out of the dark, tree-filled hollow beyond the road, a splashing that deepened rapidly to a harsh roar, and then became a heavy, booming noise of a great body of water falling solidly all the time. It occupied the whole of the night, this great, steady booming of water. Everything was drowned within it, drowned and lost. Ursula seemed to have to struggle for her life. She put her hands over her ears and looked at the high, bland moon. "'Can't we go now?' she cried to Birkin, who was watching the water on the steps, to see if it would get any lower. It seemed to fascinate him. He looked at her and nodded. The little dark boats had moved nearer. People were crowding curiously along the hedge by the high road to see what was to be seen. Birkin and Ursula went to the cottage with the key, then turned their backs on the lake. She was in great haste. She could not bear the terrible, crushing boom of the escaping water. "'Do you think they're dead?' she cried in a high voice, to make herself heard. "'Yes,' he replied. "'Isn't it horrible?' He paid no heed. They walked up the hill, further and further away from the noise. "'Do you mind very much?' she asked him. "'I don't mind about the dead,' he said, "'once they are dead. "'The worst of it is they cling on to the living and won't let go.' "'She pondered for a time. "'Yes,' she said, "'the fact of death doesn't really seem to matter much, does it?' "'No,' he said. "'What does it matter if Diana Cry is alive or dead?' "'Doesn't it?' she said, shocked. "'No. Why should it? Better she were dead. She'll be much more real. She'll be positive in death. In life she was a fretting, negated thing.' "'You are rather horrible,' murmured Ursula. "'No. I'd rather Diana Cry were dead. Her living, somehow, was all wrong. As for the young man, poor devil.' He'll find his way out quickly instead of slowly. Death is all right, nothing better. Yet you don't want to die, she challenged him. He was silent for a time. Then he said, in a voice that was frightening to her in its change, I should like to be through with it. I should like to be through with the death process. And aren't you? asked Ursula nervously. They walked on for some way in silence under the trees. Then he said, slowly, as if afraid, "'There is life which belongs to death, and there is life which isn't death. One is tired of the life that belongs to death, our kind of life. But whether it is finished, God knows. I want love that is like sleep, like being born again, "'vulnerable as a baby that just comes into the world.' Ursula listened, half attentive, half avoiding what he said. She seemed to catch the drift of his statement, and then she drew away. She wanted to hear, but she did not want to be implicated. She was reluctant to yield there where he wanted her, to yield, as it were, her very identity. "'Why should love be like sleep?' she asked sadly. "'I don't know. So that it is like death. I do want to die from this life, and yet it is more than life itself. One is delivered over like a naked infant from the womb, all the old defences and the old body gone, and new air around one that has never been breathed before.' 
she listened, making out what he said. She knew, as well as he knew, that words themselves do not convey meaning, that they are but a gesture we make, a dumb show, like any other. And she seemed to feel his gesture through her blood, and she drew back, even though her desire sent her forward. But, she said gravely, didn't you say you wanted something that was not love, something beyond love? He turned in confusion. There was always confusion in speech. Yet it must be spoken. Whichever way one moved, if one were to move forwards, one must break a way through. And to know, to give utterance, was to break a way through the walls of the prison, as the infant in labour strives through the walls of the womb. There is no new movement now without the breaking through of the old body, deliberately, in knowledge, in the struggle to get out. "'I don't want love,' he said. "'I don't want to know you. I want to be gone out of myself, and you to be lost to yourself. So we are found different. One shouldn't talk when one is tired and wretched.' One hamletizes, and it seems a lie. Only believe me when I show you a bit of healthy pride and insouciance. I hate myself serious. Why shouldn't you be serious? she said. He thought for a minute. Then he said, sulkily, I don't know. Then they walked on in silence at outs. He was vague and lost. "'Isn't it strange?' she said, suddenly putting her hand on his arm with a loving impulse. "'How we always talk like this! "'I suppose we do love each other in some way.' "'Oh, yes,' he said. "'Too much.' She laughed almost gaily. "'You'd have to have it your own way, wouldn't you?' she teased. "'You could never take it on trust.' He changed, laughed softly and turned and took her in his arms in the middle of the road. "'Yes,' he said softly. And he kissed her face and brow, slowly, gently, with a sort of delicate happiness which surprised her extremely, and to which she could not respond. They were soft, blind kisses, perfect in their stillness. Yet she held back from them. It was like strange moths, very soft and silent, settling on her from the darkness of her soul. She was uneasy. She drew away. "'Isn't somebody coming?' she said. So they looked down the dark road, then set off again, walking towards Beldover. Then suddenly, to show him she was no shallow prude, she stopped and held him tight, hard against her, and covered his face with hard, fierce kisses of passion. In spite of his otherness, the old blood beat up in him. "'Not this, not this,' he whimpered to himself, as the first perfect mood of softness and sleep-loveliness ebbed back away from the rushing of passion that came up to his limbs and over his face as she drew him. And soon he was a perfect, hard flame of passionate desire for her, yet in the small core of the flame was an unyielding anguish of another thing. But this also was lost, he only wanted her, with an extreme desire that seemed inevitable as death, beyond question. Then, satisfied and shattered, fulfilled and destroyed, he went home away from her, drifting vaguely through the darkness, lapsed into the old fire of burning passion. Far away, far away, there seemed to be a small lament in the darkness. But what did it matter? 
What did it matter, what did anything matter, save this ultimate and triumphant experience of physical passion, that had blazed up anew like a new spell of life? "'I was becoming quite dead alive. Nothing but a word-bag,' he said in triumph, scorning his other self. Yet somewhere far off and small, the other hovered. The men were still dragging the lake when he got back. He stood on the bank and heard Gerald's voice. The water was still booming in the night. The moon was fair. The hills beyond were elusive. The lake was sinking. There came the raw smell of the banks in the night air. Up at Shortlands there were lights in the windows, as if nobody had gone to bed. On the landing-stage was the old doctor, the father of the young man who was lost. He stood quite silent, waiting. Birkin also stood and watched. Gerald came up in a boat. "'You still here, Rupert?' he said. "'We can't get them. The bottom slopes, you know.' very steep. The water lies between two very sharp slopes with little branch valleys, and God knows where the drift will take you. It isn't as if it was a level bottom. You never know where you are with the dragging. Is there any need for you to be working? said Birkin. Wouldn't it be much better if you went to bed? To bed! Good God, do you think I should sleep? We'll find them before I go away from here. But the men would find them just the same without you. Why should you insist? Gerald looked up at him. Then he put his hand affectionately on Birkin's shoulder, saying, Don't you bother about me, Rupert. If there's anybody's health to think about, it's yours, not mine. How do you feel yourself? Very well. But you, you spoil your own chance of life. You waste your best self. Gerald was silent for a moment. Then he said, Waste it? What else is there to do with it? But leave this, won't you? You force yourself into horrors and put a millstone of beastly memories round your neck. Come away now. A millstone of beastly memories, Gerald repeated. Then he put his hand again affectionately on Birkin's shoulder. "'God, you've got such a telling way of putting things, Rupert, you have!' Birkin's heart sank. He was irritated and weary of having a telling way of putting things. "'Won't you leave it? Come over to my place,' he urged, as one urges a drunken man. "'No,' said Gerald coaxingly his arm across the other man's shoulder. "'Thanks very much, Rupert. I shall be glad to come to-morrow, if that'll do. You understand, don't you? I want to see this job through, but I'll come to-morrow right enough. Oh, I'd rather come and have a chat with you than, than do anything else, I verily believe. Yes, I would. You mean a lot to me, Rupert, more than you know.' "'What do I mean, more than I know?' asked Birkin irritably. He was acutely aware of Gerald's hand on his shoulder, and he did not want this altercation. He wanted the other man to come out of the ugly misery. "'I'll tell you another time,' said Gerald coaxingly. "'Come along with me now. I want you to come,' said Birkin. There was a pause, intense and real, Birkin wondered why his own heart beat so heavily. Then Gerald's fingers gripped hard and communicative into Birkin's shoulder, as he said, "'No, I'll see this job through, Rupert. Thank you. I know what you mean. We're all right, you know, you and me.' "'I may be all right, but I'm sure you're not mucking about here,' said Birkin. And he went away. The bodies of the dead were not recovered till towards dawn. Diana had her arms tight round the neck of the young man, choking him. 
She killed him, said Gerald. The moon sloped down the sky and sank at last. The lake was sunk to quarter size. It had horrible raw banks of clay that smelled of raw, rottenish water. Dawn roused faintly behind the eastern hill. The water still boomed through the sluice. As the birds were whistling for the first morning, and the hills at the back of the desolate lake stood radiant with the new mists, there was a straggling procession up to Shortlands, men bearing the bodies on a stretcher, Gerald going beside them, the two grey-bearded fathers following in silence. Indoors the family was all sitting up, waiting. Somebody must go to tell the mother in her room. The doctor, in secret, struggled to bring back his son, till he himself was exhausted. Over all the outlying district was a hush of dreadful excitement on that Sunday morning. The colliery people felt as if this catastrophe had happened directly to themselves. Indeed, they were more shocked and frightened than if their own men had been killed. Such a tragedy in Shortlands, the high home of the district. One of the young mistresses, persisting in dancing on the cabin roof of the launch, willful young madam, drowned in the midst of the festival with the young doctor. Everywhere on the Sunday morning the colliers wandered about discussing the calamity. At all the Sunday dinners of the people there seemed a strange presence. It was as if the angel of death were very near. There was a sense of the supernatural in the air. The men had excited, startled faces. The women looked solemn. Some of them had been crying. The children enjoyed the excitement at first. There was an intensity in the air, almost magical. Did all enjoy it? Did all enjoy the thrill? Gudrun had wild ideas of rushing to comfort Gerald. She was thinking all the time of the perfect, comforting, reassuring thing to say to him. She was shocked and frightened, but she put that away, thinking of how she should deport herself with Gerald, act her part. That was the real thrill, how she should act her part. Ursula was deeply and passionately in love with Birkin, and she was capable of nothing. She was perfectly callous about all the talk of the accident, but her estranged air looked like trouble. She merely sat by herself whenever she could, and longed to see him again. She wanted him to come to the house. She would not have it otherwise. He must come at once. She was waiting for him. She stayed indoors all day, waiting for him to knock at the door. Every minute she glanced automatically at the window. He would be there. End of chapter 14 Recording by Ruth Golding